0: do to turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 2 and stand with me, please. This is the word of the Lord. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it and bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the river bank. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. He became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, seeing no one. He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. Then he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Shepherds came, drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. When they had come home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and then even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he can come and eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For, he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to the Lord. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel And God knew. You can be seated. And children, you can be dismissed to children's church. Exodus chapter 2. As I study and as I, I read and prepare a sermon, I think to myself throughout the week, what is it that I want my church family to understand about this passage of scripture. And I would say this. As I have enjoyed and want to share with you, we should take great pleasure in seeing the providence of God and seeing here in Exodus 2 that there are a number of shadows that remind us of the greatest providence of God in Jesus Christ we should be thrilled with the greatness of God's providence. The title I've given this section is The Exodus of Moses. This is really a sort of precursor to the Exodus, but it just involves this one man, Moses. Now, the book of Exodus is a book written by Moses. It's one of five volumes in a collection known as the Pentateuch. We have in our Bibles the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. This is part two in the five-volume set. Exodus is written by Moses probably while the people are wandering around in the wilderness. Because of their disbelief, they're left for a generation of people to pass away. And a young generation is growing up. And Moses is revealing all of God's work up to this point in Genesis and Exodus. And that's important for the people as they wander to see the revelation of their God from Genesis into Exodus. This account is not an obscure history lesson. This is an account of God's faithfulness to complete the things he has said he would do. Therefore, this account is for us. I mentioned to you last week, 1 Corinthians actually says those things that happened during the Exodus happened for our learning, for our understanding. We are learning about God and how our covenant relationship with God is affected by his faithful promise-keeping. This week, and the things that we experience. I've given uh, this sermon, and we'll go through the whole chapter. We won't always do a chapter a day. Um, This one, I had moments of doubt as late as this morning. I almost dropped two points because the first one is sufficient for a sermon. But the title I've given to each of the points, and maybe it helps you remember them, I've given them each a P. The first one is Providence, The second one is pilgrimage, and the third one is pity. So we will take this chapter and divide it into three sections. The providence of God. What a beautiful story of providence. I mean, there are some things, and we have to be careful, right, about overexposure to stories like Moses in the basket. We have to be careful because we are sometimes overexposed. We've we've heard the story so long that we start to overlook, we start to omit important details. The providence of God. And then as you followed along as we read, the pilgrimage. Moses becomes a pilgrim, a stranger in a foreign place. And then we finish with those verses about God and his pity on the people's need. So let's begin with verses 1 through 10. The providence. The Bible simply says, A man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman and they had a son. The Bible is making clear to us that the work that Moses would go on to do to be the shepherd of the people, he was fit to do. Because it hadn't even been explained yet that this would be the task of the Levites and already God is doing what he hadn't even told the people was going to be required. And so... Moses is of the tribe of Levi. Moses would be qualified for the religious, spiritual leadership of the people. The woman conceived in verse two and bore a son, and she saw that he was a fine child. So she hid him. Now, let me remind you, the reason she had to hide him is because chapter one ends with Pharaoh's plot being foiled at at least two turns, he thought, I'll I'll suppress the people in slavery and work them literally to death. And when that didn't work, when the people multiplied instead, because that's what God had promised he would do, when the people multiplied instead, then he said, well, let's talk to the midwives. Let's talk to the nurses and make sure that they kill any boys that are born to Hebrew women. And the midwives They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, and so they wouldn't do that. And so finally, Pharaoh reveals the evil of his heart and says, all male babies should be thrown into the nile. Now again, here's an area where we might be overexposed. Chapter 1 ends that way. Chapter 2 picks up the story of a baby not dying. What is omitted? The scores of Hebrew baby boys who were thrown into the Nile River and drowned. And this isn't allegory. This isn't fiction. This isn't a little parable about how bad people can be. This is a record of what Pharaoh tried to accomplish. And baby boys were thrown out into running water to drown. Moses' mother saw that the child was a fine child. Uh, This means something. It's not that she sees the baby and says, oh, this, this baby's not defective. This baby works. We should not throw him in the river. It also isn't the the typical, this is the most beautiful baby ever born, right? Because there are dozens of those in this room. The most beautiful babies ever born. Josh? Yeah, he knows. He knows what I'm talking about. Literally, she was awestruck with moses and not just as a mother there was something really significant about moses appearance as a child the language seems to indicate the woman conceived and bore a son this is the 16th time moses will write that statement the woman conceived and bore a son it's the 16th the previous 15 are all about hebrew patriarchs about a family about a family This is the 16th time and the last time that Moses will write that sentence in the Pentateuch. Now, that's important for a reason. God promised Abraham that from Abraham's family, a nation would happen. So in the family tree, a man and woman having a son, a man and woman having a son, a man and woman having a son, 15 times it was really important. The 16th time, it's kind of important. Moses, Moses writes down, My mom conceived and had me. And he doesn't write it ever again. Now why does that matter? Because Israel is not meant to be an endless family tree. It's meant to be a nation of people to God. And so who begets who changes in the nation Israel. The 16th and final time, Moses says, and there's a baby born. Verse 3 says, when she couldn't hide the baby anymore, I don't know exactly why. Maybe people were growing suspicious. Maybe she hadn't been out in social life and they were asking why. Maybe the baby's cryings so were getting louder. So at that point, she took the baby and put him in a basket made of bulrushes and boot him in and pitch, kind of covered it to make it float. She put the child in it placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, hoping, I suppose, that if you put it among the reeds, maybe the basket won't be carried away by the current. And then says to Moses' older sister, can you stand over there and just see what happens? We're unsure of what comes next but the three-month-old baby has been put into a waterproof type of basket with a covering over it and put in a river. And we will wait and see. And, and, you know, maybe maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you say right now, I feel like I'm waiting to see. And I'm scared about the potential. Fear seems to be having too much sway in my soul. My joy is only a memory. And I'm waiting to see. And Exodus 2 becomes a blessing for us when we're waiting to see is God near? Does God know? Does He care? Is it possible for Him to do anything? This mother technically obeys the instruction, right? Pharaoh should have been more clear. You can't throw them in, in a ship, in a sailing vessel, just throw the babies in. But Moses' mother technically obeys Pharaoh, puts the child in the Nile. However, she places him in literally an ark. Genesis chapter seven, verse one, the same word used for the ark, that God would put his people in to deliver them from judgment is the same word used here. We read the word basket. It's literally an ark. So like Noah, Moses is going to be cared for by God in an ark. Moses' older sister stands and watches. However, this is the moment where with bated breath we read an Egyptian princess discovers the basket. That seems like certain doom, right? If you weren't already exposed to the story, you get to that point and go, oh, I don't understand it, but God is leading through loss here. But instead, the discovery of the baby by Pharaoh's daughter isn't certain death but perfect protection look with me at verse 7 exodus chapter 2 and verse 7 then his sister says to pharaoh's daughter shall i go and call you a nurse from the hebrew women to nurse the child for you and pharaoh's daughter said to her go so just so we're clear so i'm going to read it um, so that so that we don't have any mistakes Moses's sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go call for Moses a nurse? And Pharaoh's daughter says to her, yes, go ahead. And then Moses's sister runs to get Moses's mom and says, the princess of Egypt, Wants you to come take care of your son. And literally, you can't make that up. Moses' mother is facing the daughter of her greatest fear. And God turns the circumstances from certain death to certain salvation. God here is using what the Bible later calls sons of the devil to produce salvation for one of the sons of women. In ancient times, you you ever wonder about this story and think, okay, so how long? Well, in our culture, we might say, okay, there's going to be you know, six months, a year, 18 months of need for a wet nurse. In ancient culture, Moses and his mom are going to be together for three or four years, at least. Can you imagine the celebration? Jochebed is Moses' mom and Amram, his dad, can you imagine the celebration they would have had that day? Not only does the child live but the princess of Egypt has now hired me to make sure my son is okay. That celebration probably only tempered by the fact that there was a contractual agreement literally the princess is paying Moses' mother to wean the child and then deliver him to the palace. The big house. Pharaoh? The big house. Let me let me say let me say two things quickly about that. Uh, you have heard me advocate before for that really vulnerable Taking care of a child when you know it might not be very long. <laughs> I read that this week to four years <clears throat> I didn't mean for that to be distracting and I thought about three years and sometimes Christians will say things by accident like oh I could never give that child up at three or four years I just couldn't do that but do you think for a moment God provided three or four years with Moses and the mom said, ah, it'll make it too hard later. It's not going to be worth it. Of course not, right? Now, let me add a joyful side to that. We see evidence that in the time Moses spent as a toddler with his mom and his family, we see evidence that he was undeniably shaped by that time. Later, he's going to be reunited with his brother, Aaron, and they have a bond immediately. They know each other. They are family. His sister, during the exodus, she plays an important role in the exodus. It seems like he has a significant ongoing relationship with his biological family, even though, in fact, we know that when he's four, he is taken to the big house, uh, not prison. He is taken to Pharaoh's house, to be raised and certainly his mother was heartbroken but the providence of god had given her three or four years pharaoh's daughter is going to get the naming rights and she chooses a name again you can't make this up <laughs> she chooses a name moses literally in egyptian it means son of Son of, she's trying to claim, this is the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You know what the Hebrew translation of son of is? Drawn out of. Hmm, well that's interesting. Not only is he drawn out of the Nile, but we know that God is going to use this one servant to draw his people out of bondage. To draw them into the promised land and the providence of God. And why does God do things like that? Is he just witty and has an odd sense of humor? Why does God do things like this? I think it's for our learning. I think it's not meant to be clever or trite. I think it's for us to simply undeniably see God in fact is orchestrating all of these steps. Let me, let me paint one picture. Moses' sister. She stands a ways off from the Nile and watches the basket in the weeds. It is her duty to watch and see what happens. And thankfully she did, right? We could say, what if, <laughs> what if she hadn't? By the way, what if is the cousin of, luckily, she did What if she hadn't? Matthew Henry said this. Duty belongs to man, but the events are all God's. Her standing there and watching was her duty, and her mother had given her that duty. But everything that would come after that belonged to God. The events belonged to God. The providence of God in salvation is brought through five women in this first paragraph we see compassion we see obedience we see protection we see wisdom and god using all of that responsibility to orchestrate these events When God came to the garden and saw the crime scene in Eden, one of the things he said is that the seed of the woman was going to crush the adversary. Little shadows like this one remind us that God will do just that. Now, The providence of God is really exciting and really fun to learn about from this opening paragraph. But before I step away from it, you're probably in a variety of places as a person. Maybe you have no idea of the providence of God. Maybe that's a completely foreign thing to you. Or maybe you know about it in theory, but you have very limited experience with it. Or maybe you're at a place where you say, I have no doubt that the providence of God will orchestrate my life and its events because I've experienced it so often. I know it firsthand over and over and over. And I don't know where you are in that sequence of experience. But I hope that this opening paragraph and these events don't for a moment strike you as lucky but as a God who is near to us and is working everything according to the counsel of his will. This is evident as these five women interact and God raises up his servant. We see his providence. Let's move on to that servant's pilgrimage. So we see the providence of God. He's raising up a servant. But then we see next a pilgrimage in verses 11 through 22. Look at verse 11 with me. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, which is interesting to note, right? Because we're probably 35 to 40 years down the life line of Moses already. So Moses is probably around 40 years old. So he's grown up and he sees and takes pity on a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian because the Hebrew is one of his own people. He looks to his left. He looks to his right. By the way, that's indicating premeditated action. And he strikes down the Egyptian and then buries the body in the sand. When Pharaoh hears it, he says, I'm going to kill Moses. By the way, we can only speculate at what risk the princess was taking when she decided to adopt a child that was supposed to be put to death. Her dad had decreed the children needed to die. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us, and that's appropriate. It's not imperative to the story. In fact, the princess doesn't get a name, Pharaoh doesn't get a name. Pharaoh has no familial commitment to Moses and says, that's it, he killed one of the soldiers, he's got to die. Seems to indicate that Pharaoh's probably not enamored with this adoption. Moses finds out, and he takes off. He goes to Midian. Um, east. He goes east. North of what is now Saudi Arabia. When he gets there, he sits down by a well. And there's this account of these daughters who come to draw water to feed the flock. But there's this band of shepherds that seem like real rabble-rousers. And they're going to drive the women away from the well. Well, here's Moses. He is on the run... From the most powerful ruler in the known world at the time, and he's sitting by a well in a strange place, and there's a group of shepherds bullying some young ladies. Now, what would you do? Well, you would read the story to try to learn. Moses steps into action. We learned some things about Moses' character here. He had not lost his instinct to intervene when people were being oppressed. He was quick quick to act against oppression, even when the odds were against him. It seems that his actions were imposing and assertive as he drives this group of shepherds away. It seems he was physically vigorous enough to chase them off, and then not just that, but then to do the ladies' morning chores for them, drawing the water and watering the flock. We learn again, that he was generous and helpful to people that he barely knew, acting out of principle. He wasn't asking for a reward and wasn't interested in only helping those people who desired his help. That's going to be important. All these characteristics are seen again in various ways as Moses responds to God's call to deliver the people. In other words, the Moses we see here by the well is a figure that God prepared for the task that was ahead of him. However potentially overwhelming the exodus would be, it would not be something entirely foreign to Moses' personality. Let me, let me borrow two minutes to say a quick word about calling. Um, As we prayed before, as Kyle appropriately reminded us about all the places on the planet where Christ's people could go and minister the gospel, we might raise a question, and I prayed about it, this mysterious, like, calling. (laughs) Let me just say a quick word about the qualifications for what we would call a calling. First of all, we would identify a desire. The Lord gives the desires of our hearts, right? doesn't mean God gives us whatever our heart wants, but the Lord conditions the hearts of his people to want what they should want, okay? So the Lord gives the desire. Secondly, there are certain characteristics or gifts that a person should have. And then third, we would say there should be an external affirmation of that giftedness. So you shouldn't self-identify yourself as competent to do whatever it is you want to do but rather you should have other friends other followers of christ other people shaped by the gospel of jesus who would also say to you yes you should do that the bible says simply for example in in uh timothy if a man desires the office of a pastor he desires a good thing it doesn't say as long as you desire it just go do it tell them they have to start writing checks to you because you want to It doesn't say that. It says it's a good thing to desire it, but it doesn't say that's it. We see here in Moses certain gifts or characteristics that make him fit for what God has called him to do. In verses 20 through 22, we see this brief survey of Moses' life in Midian. Jethro invites him over to dinner. Moses settles down as part of Jethro's household. Moses marries Zipporah. They have a child named Gershon. Moses had become an exile from the land of Egypt, from his own people, Israel. He is sort of a preview of what it means to be in an exile or exodus. He he communicates that in verse 22. His wife, Zipporah, gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom because, he said this, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, Moses must have heard the stories of God's providence to him as a boy. Right? His mother must have conveyed to him, listen to what happened. Let me tell you again this story. And he heard it over and over. He understood that he had been taken care of beyond human means and expectation. And now he gets to this point. I want to invite you to sympathize with the spiritual challenge that Moses is in. He was a failure to deliver his people. At the age of 40, he seems to march out into the conflict of slavery for his people and try to intervene. It's a crime that even his own people don't appreciate. He's therefore a failure as a citizen of Egypt, an exiled member of Pharaoh's household, unwelcome now either in the nation of Egypt or the Hebrew people. He's a wanted man. There is an ancient Egyptian record of um, a band of soldiers, Egyptian soldiers, chasing a man to the east uh, to, to put him to death for murdering a soldier. I don't know if it's Moses or not, but he's a wanted man. He's now a stranger in a new place, alone among unfamiliar people. his circumstances would require some amazing supernatural providence again for him to survive, much less to go back to Egypt and lead captive people to freedom. And so maybe you can sympathize. You say, I've seen God provide for me before, but at this moment, I feel like I am a pilgrim a sojourner from the land of God's providence. And in that experience that you feel might be momentary. You might say, I found something out on Friday or Saturday, and I feel like I am wandering in a strange place, unsure if God continues to provide for me. Or it might be something that's years long. How has this been my situation For so long, and I come to church this morning and I hear the pastor teaching about God providing. Maybe you sympathize in different ways with what Moses is experiencing right now. And so it's good for us to move into the last point. The pity of God. The pity of God. Providence, pilgrimage, and now pity. How is God interacting with his people, and what would they come to expect, whether it's Moses or the people back in Israel, when they are in this dire circumstance? Verses 23 and 24 and then 25. During these many days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now maybe chapter 2 doesn't end that way in your translation, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Now that Moses' situation has been summarized, he's, he's experienced providence, he's heard the testimony of providence to his life, but he's not experiencing that now. He seems to be in exile. He seems to be on the run and wanted, unwelcome in his home. These verses conclude the entire section of introduction to the story. So the whole section of introducing the story ends right here. And it ends with a testimony from Moses, looking back to the beginning of the Exodus and saying, God's about to show his providence again on the foundation of his covenant with us. There are five important assertions that are made in these three verses. Let's walk through them fairly quickly. The first one. We learn here that the Pharaoh who had exiled Moses or who had sought his life is dead. He's died. He's gone, which means it is possible now for Moses to go back. Not as uh, a criminal on trial. That would That's what would have happened. If he had gone back, item of business number one would have been, all right, the trial of Moses. Well, I, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. I just saved a, saved a, a slave from one of your soldiers. Well, you're, you're going to die for that. That's what would have been the first order of business. But not now that Pharaoh died. Now it's possible for Moses to return as a prophet, a messenger from God. The second assertion we see is that the change in government did not produce relief for the people. It did not. They are still in bondage, and we know this because they are groaning and crying out. The third assertion we see, and we might, we might not notice it right away. It says their cries went up to God. This literally is praying. I don't know about the theological condition of the people at this point. I don't know what they knew, but I know that in this moment, they called out to God, which is praying. It's just a quick word about the importance of God's sovereign providence and its relationship to our praying. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, which we studied several months ago. The one who knows all that we need before we think to pray it, nevertheless instructs us to pray it. The covenant, the exodus, are all absolutely determined events. They would not be undone. Yet God says that the people called out and God heard their cry. Number four, God, quote unquote, remembered his covenant. Honored, um, made obvious, not remembered like he forgot something and then has to remember it again. God made obvious that he was in covenant with them. 25 times in the book of Genesis, we read that God made covenant with his people. And Exodus is Moses going on to explain that God would not violate his covenant, but would honor it. The covenant he's referring to here is what's called the Abrahamic covenant. You notice in the verse, it says the covenant that God made with Abraham, the covenant he made with Isaac, and the covenant with Jacob. It's not three different covenants. However, The Abrahamic covenant is repeated to each of those generations. But it's one covenant. What exactly is that covenant? In general, we'll talk about it more later. In general, it is the promise of greatness and blessing, including the people's protection. God promised greatness, blessing, and protection. It is also a specific promise to punish anyone who would persecute them. And God remembered that promise. Number five, lastly, God was closely interested in his people and in the process of making himself known to them. God was interested in his people and the process whereby he made himself known to them. So the last statement, the last sentence of verse 25 God saw the people of Israel, and then in my English Standard Translation, there is a dash, and God knew. That is helpfully ambiguous verbiage. Because what we're meant to understand as we read that, maybe some of your Bibles communicate it, what we're meant to understand is God cared about them and cared about how they knew him. He cared about how they knew him. Him. Now, I, I want to say just one word theologically about how we know our God. Our God is jealous for how awesome we think He is. Our God is acting from the place that I would call it the fountainhead, the fountainhead, whereby the actions of God flow or spring forth is God's zeal to be seen in his glory. So how the people knew he was taking care of them mattered to God. I would say several things, but I, I just want to, I want to invite you to chew on that. God, uh, let me, let me. I I mentioned luck before. If, if your child like this is delivered this way, and and you walk away and go, whoop! It was incredibly lucky that the princess came by, and then that she liked kids. What is she gonna like, kids? We dodged a bullet. Now, you could say, yeah, Moses lives. Okay, who cares? God cares about how we know it's Him who has provided. And there's more I'd like to say, but let's move on. The theological issue for you right now is not a question of whether you suffer or how you suffer. The issue is, does your suffering go unnoticed? I think you can relate to that. You know those times when you're really feeling oppressed by maybe one giant tragic thing, or maybe a hundred small things? And you're having internal conversations of total despair, like there's no hope in your internal conversation with yourself. And in that moment, you are left to ask one imperative question, does God know this is happening? And if you can truly answer, yes, he knows this is happening. Then, you have the substance of great unshakable joy, knowing that as God's people we can properly conclude that our suffering may well be part of his plan for us. But all of the suffering is being ruled over by a sovereign father who will not let it continue in us without working out its good purpose. What I mean by that is simply James 1. I got a phone call from a pastor friend this week who was lamenting a dynamic in their, uh, in their eldership that seems to be dividing the church. It was not a church any of you would know. It's not even in the state of Wisconsin. And he called and said, I don't know what to do. It seems like our church is going to split right down the middle because we have these two elders who can't get along. And I said, well, first of all, it's not one of the qualifications for your elders to get along. Some of the elders who have been a blessing to me are people who did not agree with me. They were people who in every meeting kept me on my toes because they would say, well, why do you think that? I'm not, I'm not sure that makes sense. And sometimes I could defend it and it made sense. And sometimes it didn't make sense. And I was thankful they were there to ask. That doesn't make sense. the question about suffering. Because there are some staff elders and some lay elders, and every meeting feels like suffering. And I said, don't forget that sovereign God rules over the suffering, and often all of that suffering is working for our good. So count it joy when you fall into suffering, Knowing that suffering is often that thing that grows up your faith. And so here we have a providential God and a Moses, a servant, who is in a bad spot. But a God who takes pity. A God who rules over the suffering and will not let it continue Without it producing its good purpose in us. I hope that we read this account of God being known and we are thrilled to see the providence of God. Thrilled to see the testimony of the glory of God. So, the servant of God, saved as a baby goes to try to help his people. The people hate him. Winds up seeming to be some sort of exile. As I read that, it's another shadow that points me to the greatest providence of God, which is Jesus. You know, Jesus, the king had said that all the boys needed to be killed. Jesus, who came to his own, and his own despised him. Who made you king? You're not... Charge of us, yet became by the hand of God the servant who would bring about God's ultimate providence of salvation. Became for us effectual salvation because God is faithful to his covenant promises. As disciples, um, a big part of our discipleship if you can see it this way as I close some parts of discipleship are simply learning the confessed truth Like what do we say is true we say God is ruler over all things there's nothing that can undo what God would do God's going to do what God's going to do and we say those words and that's discipleship. We say the language. We get the language. It, it happens in coaching or in parenting. Uh, some of you might have language in your home that your kids understand. If you do that, there will be a consequence. <laughs> they understand. They guard themselves against the consequence. They understand the language. That's part of training. We all have Christian language. God loves. God cares. God cares. God rules, God plans. But discipleship goes past saying the true things to living out what we say is true. So for you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want to just say that lastly. This story probably leads us to nod our head. But that story might come into conflict with something right now in your life or something in the past in your life. And you might be at a crossroads where you say, my mouth says God is ruling over this. My mouth says God is providential, but I'm not sure I can operate with joy in my action, with faith in action." with love and patience and action. And so my charge to you as a disciple is to grow because of the word today and not just spoken confidence, but in lived out, functional confidence in God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we have this testimony of your providence. It is such a wonderful display of what is true about you. Not true to Moses because Moses was somehow special to you, not true to some other people, but true to your people. This is an account of how you shepherd, how you father your people. And so God, I am praying for myself and for my brothers and sisters here in the discipleship of your word that we would not only claim that to be a truth with our mouth, but by your word, Applied by your spirit to find an unexplainable confidence in turmoil and in storm and in peril to know that you are ruling over the very things that you are growing us with. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing together.